Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body Podcast. And I've finally managed to get my man Ben Azidi on the podcast today. And I'm going to run straight into his bio and then he's going to go deeper on his story. But in 2008, Ben Azidi, right, he went through a personal health transformation of shredding 80 pounds of pure fat. Ever since, Ben um, FDNP has been on a mission to help 1 billion People live a healthier lifestyle. You heard that right. One billion. That's like, I don't know, an eighth of the planet. Uh, Ben's an author of four best-selling books, Keto Flex, The Perfect Health Booklet, The Intermittent Fasting Cheat Sheet, and The Power of Sleep. Ben has been the go-to source for intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. He's known as the health detective because he investigates dysfunction and he educates, not medicates, uh, to bring the best, to bring the body back to normal function. Ben's the founder of Keto Camp, a global brand bringing awareness to ancient healing strategies such as the keto diet and fasting. And Ben's the host of a top 15 award winning podcast, the Keto Camp podcast. I'm not going to go into the numbers. The numbers are crazy. We'll be here all day if we go there in terms of YouTube TikTok. <laughs> crazy numbers that he's getting, and rightly so, because his content is extremely valuable. Uh, and just to finish this off, he's a keynote speaker who delivered a keynote lecture for KetoCon. Uh, last year, and he's been featured in Forbes, LA Weekly, Disrupt Magazine, NY Times Mag, LA Entertainment Weekly, and other publications. Ben, I've read some like bios out, man, but as I was reading that, well, back to myself off air, I was like, that is that that's a bio, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Martin. It's uh, great to be with you on your podcast. I love what you're doing. It's an honor, and I'm glad we finally made it happen. Same, man. Same, and. I'd like to get straight into, Ben, because your personal transformation is super inspiring. I'd love to just get straight into kind of your background and your personal transformation, because in your words, I'm going to get straight into the heavy stuff here, Ben. Uh, you were obese and suicidal at one point, right? I was, yeah. So for the majority of my life, and I'm, I'm born and raised here in Miami. We we're just talking about that offline. My parents uh, immigrated to Miami from Iran, the Middle East, in the 1970s. And then I was born here, so I was, I'm first-generation American. And my parents got divorced, so I was pretty much left to my own devices growing up. My mom worked three jobs, raising me and my sister. And my mom actually worked at fast food restaurants, and she would bring me home fast food restaurants, doing the best she can, trying to make ends meet. So I, I ate very unhealthy I also had a lot of bad behaviors to drugs and alcohol and video games. And my environment was really toxic with the people I was hanging out with. So as a kid, I was always unhealthy. I was always overweight and eventually turned into being obese physically, but also mentally obese. And nothing really changed. I didn't change my habits. I didn't take responsibility uh, until I was 24 years old back in 2008. And back then, the reason... I made a change was because I was forced to make a change. I was rock bottom. I was depressed. I was on the internet looking for ways to end my life. I kept exploring that because I was tired of hurting every day and being in pain. At this time, I weighed 250 pounds. I was working at a nine to five job that was not inspiring to me. And I would have taken my life if it wasn't for me thinking about my mother and the devastation she would have to deal with if, uh, if I took my life. So it forced me to figure things out. And that's when I got into books. I started to fall in love with authors like Dr. Wayne Dyer. And I started reading Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he, he would say things like, if other people are the cause of your problem, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. Uh, he would say things like, hey, 
when life squeezes you, what comes out is what's inside, like an orange. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Orange juice, because that's what's inside, right? Life had been squeezing me, and what came out of me was negativity, uh, anger, hatred, because that's what was inside. And as I started to learn more about the mindset component from Dr. Wayne Dyer and Bob Proctor and Tony Robbins and so many others, I understood that, okay, if that's what's coming out of me, that's because what's inside of me. And if I could change what's inside of me, then what comes out of me will be abundance and love and, and health and vitality. So I started to work on my thoughts. I started to move my body. I started to exercise. I started to play basketball. Uh, I did P90X, which is an online workout program that was very popular back then. And uh, you know, my I started to have more energy. The food was directly impacting my mood. And I just became obsessed with fitness and nutrition. And uh, I took responsibility first and foremost for my circumstances, which is something that, that I lacked and so many people lack. They they play the victim card and there's really no such thing as a victim. There are only volunteers. They choose to be a victim. And for me, I was choosing to be a victim until I took responsibility. And I, then I stopped being the victim of my history and I started to become the victor of my destiny. And nine months after that moment of, of clarity and, and responsibility, I went from 250 pounds all the way down to 170 pounds. I went from uh, a high of 34% body fat to as low as 6% body fat. And I finally achieved a, a physical six pack, Martin. And for me, that was significant because I always dreamed of that, being the kid that was bullied and picked on from being overweight, wearing my t-shirt and to the swimming pools. Like a six pack was always a dream for me. And I achieved that. But most importantly, I achieved what I call a mental six pack and what it did for my thoughts and my mindset. And that goes hand in hand with health. Uh, it's a, it's it's really a missing piece that's probably the most important piece, the mindset part. And that was 15 plus years ago. Uh, ever since then, I've been a student and a teacher. Uh, I've been continuously learning and unlearning and relearning. And the goal, as you mentioned with the intro, is to educate and to inspire a billion people to help them reclaim their power back, to get them off the sick care system, to help them understand their body was built to be self-healing. Let's identify what's interfering with this inner physician that we have all within us. Let's remove that interference and let the body heal itself. And that is the mission nowadays. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah, you said it then, didn't you, in terms of victim, playing the victim card, right? There's only two ways you can do it, right? You can play the victim. And I know it hurts, right? The other side, the other side hurts, right? Because you're taking ownership. Like you said, you're taking ownership. You've got to look in the mirror. It's painful, but it's also empowering, right, Ben? When you stop playing the victim and you take ownership for the situation you're in, and that's exactly what you did. But you touched on something before and you said about getting healthy to lose weight, not losing weight to get healthy. Talk us yeah. through that, man, because you just kind of touched on that then. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly how the body works. It does not lose weight in order to get healthy. And unfortunately, especially in the space that you're in, Martin, the more the fitness space, uh, we see that being taught, meaning, hey, if you just want to lose weight, it's all about calories. And this is a, this is a controversial topic, right? I'm not, I'm not saying calories don't matter and we should ignore them. What I'm saying is that it's not the most important thing to focus on. The most important thing to focus on is your metabolic health, your metabolism. How metabolically flexible are you? Because when you become metabolically flexible and you allow your body to utilize different substrates whenever it needs to, glucose, fat, then what happens is, the body lowers inflammation, and as a result, your hormones could function better. They could get into the cell and function better. And then the side effect of doing that is the weight comes off, you see, because you're getting healthy 
to lose weight versus losing weight to get healthy. When you're just focusing on moving more and eating less, you're not necessarily taking care of the cause to why you are overweight. So it's it's really confusing to people when they just start tracking every calorie and they focus all of their energy into calories because in the beginning it might work and you might lose some weight, but it doesn't address the underlying issue, which is your hormones and your cell metabolism. So that's my main focus. My main focus is helping people achieve what I call metabolic freedom. And once they do that, oh my gosh, the, the reason I say metabolic freedom is because they're no longer attached to the scale. They're no longer have to track every single thing that goes into their mouth. They could go uh, a day, two days, five days without food and feel great because they're feeding off their body fat. That is the goal to achieve metabolic freedom. As a result of that, the side effect will be sustained weight loss. Metabolic freedom. I love that term. And I've heard you talk about changing your thoughts can change your health, right, as well, which is, again, what you're alluding to. Because I remember yeah. you, because you got this, uh, I don't know, obviously I can talk about the documentary. I know it's not actually out yet, but you put it on your Instagram, so I'm hoping I can. It's a bit late now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, share about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah, just give us some context on that, Banks. I know you did say about how many thoughts we get a day, most of them being negative. I'd love to get a bit more depth on that because those thoughts ultimately are going to impact your behaviors and then your behavior is going to be a direct uh, you know, indicator to your health, right? You said it exactly. Yeah. So that documentary, which I, I'm grateful to be a part of, is called Biohack Yourself. It's going to be out in uh, 2024 on Amazon Prime. They're aiming to put it on Netflix and some other platforms. And on that uh, clip that you mentioned, the question they asked me, the uh, interviewer, Anthony, was asking me about you know, what's your final message? What's what's thing? What's one thing you want to leave for the audience? And that was the fact that we have the ability to change our health, good or bad, with our thoughts. Uh, and most people don't get that. They might hear that and say, yeah, right, Ben, that, that is so woo-woo. But I'm telling you, there's science to back it up. And the research shows that the average person has around 60,000 thoughts every day. And out of those 60,000 thoughts, about 90% of them are the same thoughts from yesterday. And about 85% of those thoughts are negative thoughts. Zig Ziglar used to call it stinking thinking. And I've been saying that if your thinking is stinking, your dreams are shrinking. And Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's a world-renowned cell biologist who wrote a fantastic book called The Biology of Belief, has proven that your thoughts are a frequency that communicate with your DNA nucleus. And if it's a negative thought, a hateful thought, an angry thought, a resentful thought, that frequency, that communication sent to your DNA signals to your DNA to produce inflammatory proteins and cytokines, and it shortens your telomeres and it damages your DNA with those negative thoughts. But if those thoughts are loving thoughts, grateful thoughts, abundant thoughts, the same signal is sent to the DNA, but now what is produced are anti-inflammatory proteins. It protects your telomeres, it protects your DNA, and you actually extend your lifespan. So that means if we have 60,000 thoughts per day, we essentially have 60,000 opportunities every day to either put the body in a healing state or an inflamed state. And it's really our choice. But you mentioned something that is really important because our thoughts do influence our actions. Our actions do influence our results, not just with health, but in life. And then those results influence our destiny, essentially. But even before all of that is our environment. Our environment influences our thoughts then you have the following cascade. So that's why we have to go to the beginning and do an audit on our environment and listen to podcasts like your podcast and listen, consume content that's feeding your subconscious mind the right 
uh, information, the the right blueprint, so you could start creating those those manifesting those thoughts. And you, and even people in your life, we have to, you know, cut out people in your life that potentially are not supporting you or, or they're negative. And it's very difficult to change the thoughts when your environment is not changed. So I do recommend we do an audit on our environment and clean that up. And that'll make it a lot easier to change those thoughts. Environment is key. I'm glad you touched on that, Ben, right? The social influence yeah. and also just your immediate environment, but your emotional environment as well, right? That is part of yeah. your diet, what you're taking in on social media, the podcast you're tuning into, right? I think that's a really, really that. important point. Yeah, it has a massive impact. I, I always talk about this study, right? But it's a fascinating study. You may have heard of it. It was done on millions of people on social influence. And long story short, if you've got a close friend who's obese, you've got like a 48% higher chance of being obese yourself. And even a friend of a friend is obese, I think it's 20% higher. And then it was like a friend of a friend of a friend. I don't know how they did this study, but friend of a friend of a friend is obese. <laughs> It's 10% higher chance of being obese yourself, right? So I know that's kind of like another conversation, but just to highlight the impact of social influence, but then you said what you're taking in as well. I'm glad you said that because that's definitely part of your diet. Inflammation, yeah. Ben, right? You talk a lot on inflammation. And I think when people hear the word, a lot of my audience, inflammation, they kind of know it's, they think in their head, oh yeah, that's not good. It's not ideal, right? But obviously, you know, we need certain levels of information from training, for example, right, to actually get stronger and everything else. And we need a little bit of stress. But talk us through why you think people are dealing with all this chronic information and what you think kind of the main causes are, you know, and uh, yeah, that's it, really. I was going to say on what impact, but that's like three questions in one then. <laughs> the chronic <laughs> information and the main causes you think or factors, and I know it's multifactorial, uh, but what comes to mind for you, my man? Yeah, it is definitely definitely multifactorial, as you said. Yeah, there's two types of inflammation. There's acute, uh, you mentioned a workout is acute inflammation. That's actually pretty good. I I'm sore, you know, my chest and my uh, upper back is sore from my workout yesterday. I did some bench press and some pull-ups and I caused inflammation and that's good. Now my body is recovering and I'm, I'm adapting and getting stronger. This is what you teach, right? But then we have chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation is, is different. That is... Um, cellular inflammation. When we think about our cells, we have about 70 trillion cells inside of the human body. And every cell has a lipid bilayer, this cell membrane that supports it. And it allows, this membrane allows things in, good things in like nutrients and hormones and oxygen and thoughts and uh, a lot of other things, but it allows good things in and then bad things out, meaning free radicals and, and um, reactive oxygen species, toxins, et cetera. When there's too much inflammation around that cell, which is chronic inflammation, now the good stuff can't get in efficiently, bad stuff cannot get out, and then we have cells that are now inflamed, they're called senescent cells, they're potentially infecting other cells, they could go rogue, they could turn into cancer cells, and then we develop symptoms. We develop symptoms like brain fog, and weight gain, and diabetes, and cancer, and autoimmune. I mean, we could go on and on for hours about symptoms, but the symptoms are not the problem. Symptoms are a gift from the innate intelligence showing you did something that put the body out of homeostasis and, and showing you this check engine light as a reminder that, hey, let's get you back to where you need to be. So we don't chase the symptoms, we get to the cause. So the causes, as your question was, what are the contributing causes here? Uh, there are many things. I, I'd say, I think the number one I know the number one cause of cellular inflammation these days, it was different 20 years ago, but these days is actually environmental toxins. Uh, we have heavy metals everywhere uh, from silver amalgam fillings to lead-based paint through cleaning supplies and mold exposure. I mean, toxins are number one because those toxins are lipophilic 
they're meaning fat loving, they love fat and your membrane is made up of fat. So they actually get embedded into those membranes. And then the receptor sites that need to hear messages like hormones and nutrients are now blunted and blocked because those toxins sit there and they inflame the membrane. So that's the number one thing. And then glyphosate would be a category uh, in that category of toxins. So in America, glyphosate is everywhere. I don't know how it is in your country, but in America, it is sprayed everywhere. Even if you eat organic, it's going to have some residues of glyphosate. That is a contributor to inflammation, of course. Then we have things like uh, processed vegetable oils and seed oils, these industrial seed oils that also create a lot of membrane inflammation. They stick in the body for a very long time. And of course, processed sugar, processed carbohydrates, those, those high glucose and insulin spikes will also create inflammation around the membrane. So I would say those are the top three contributors to chronic inflammation. Environmental toxins, um, we're going to say vegetable oils that are industrialized seed oils, and then sugar, uh, high glucose and insulin spikes, frequently high glucose and insulin spikes. Yeah, man, that, that makes a lot of sense. And also the fact that people are overeating, constantly overeating, eating more calories than they need on top of that, right? So then like you mentioned about metabolic health, but yeah, the glyphosate thing in America, I mean, that stuff is another conversation, right? Now, it's definitely not out here. I mean, America, <laughs> that's another conversation, right? With the food regulations <laughs> that have gone on there or whatever regulation they have, if they have any. Right. But, yeah. So the vegetable oils, though, Ben, I would like to touch on this, right? Because I'm constantly having this conversation with clients and essentially I get them to avoid vegetable oils uh, like the plague, right? And those trans yeah, fats. smart. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think it's having such a big impact on inflammation? And, you know, what kind of vegetable oils would you say are the ones people should really, really pay attention to? Probably all of them, but are there any that you think are worse than others? Yeah, it's really, it's it's the uh, processing of them that make them bad. When we just think about omega-6 fats, well, vegetable oils are omega-6 oils, uh, or fats, I should say. But it doesn't mean that all omega-6 fats are bad for you. I mean, there's omega-6 fats in grass-fed beef. How could that be bad for us? It's when it's processed that makes it bad. And the reason why it is so inflammatory and unstable is because the chemical structure of these vegetable oils, they're called polyunsaturated fatty acids, so PUFAs for short. And I know you know this, but I'm just explaining it for your audience the reason it's called poly is because it contains many double bonds. So when we look at the chemical structure of these fats, you'll see a whole bunch of these double bonds that are closely located to each other. And the significance of that is that when they're processed with high heat temperature, which they do with these oils, it oxidizes these oils, these fats. So think of biting into an apple and leaving it on the counter and it, turn, it starts to rust. That's kind of what these oils are doing to our cells. It's rusting our cells. And there's some research showing that these vegetable oils, they stick around in our bodies for a very long time. Uh, one study showed the half-life of these vegetable oils is about 680 days. That means if you, were, if you stop eating them today, because you're listening to Martin and he's coached you to stop eating them today, about 680 days later, they will still be in your body fat around your cell membrane creating problems. So we want to get rid of them as soon as possible. You asked for a list. There are eight of them that are called the hateful eight. At least my, my colleague, Dr. Kate Shanahan calls it that. And I like that term for them. So we have three C's, three S's and two others. I'm going to list them all for your audience right now. We have canola oil, corn oil, and cottonseed oil. We have sunflower oil, safflower oil, and soybean oil. And then we have rice bran oil and grapeseed oil. These are the hateful eight. They're polyunsaturated fatty acids. 
what we want to do is swap them for saturated and monounsaturated fats, which are much more stable. They don't have that problem with all those double bonds. So these are going to be butter, ghee, beef tallow, avocado oil, olive oil, even lard, if it's not hydrogenated, it could be totally fine. Coconut oil. These are much, much better options and our cells actually could use it for fuel. Thanks for sharing, man. Yeah, I think here they do use a like when you eat out and stuff, it's like even if you try and make a good decision, they've got some good places here, but you try to make good decisions and then you see they use canola oil. You know, that's a very popular one here. But in America, you mentioned yeah. all those there and they're just everywhere, right? It's like nowhere that. And I know people, my friend went to America recently and he was like, man, I was, I was doing my best to eat healthy and he found some good places, but he was like, I just didn't feel good. And I started getting bloated and stuff. And he said, I don't get that here, you know, in Australia, even when I eat out. So but what's going on over there? But yeah, in terms of uh, hormones as well and, and what you mentioned there, and you always talk about hormone function and everything else. And obviously hormone dysfunction and people taking, you know, HRT and stuff like that now is becoming more and more common. Um, yeah. I'd love to just talk on that topic, Ben, in terms of hormones and what you see with people related metabolism, metabolic health to hormones and, and, and whatever else you think, again, is going to be multifactorial. People are struggling with in terms of their hormones being dysfunctional. What do you think like the main causes of that are? And like, what if you can give us some examples of how you kind of uh, coach people through it in terms of right, we're gonna put these things in place to make sure we can, you know, we can get your hormones functioning better. And again, I know that's a really wide question, but I, I guess a better way to frame this is if you could tell us more about how hormones impact health and what are the common yeah. problems you see with hormones. Is a better way to frame that one. Yeah, you know, hormone hormones are very important. They're they're chemical messengers, and the body has over 600 different hormones. I mean, we have the most popular hormones that most people know of, testosterone, estrogen, insulin, et cetera, but there's a lot. And they're responsible for how your cells function. They're, big, they're a big player in that this orchestra, this amazing orchestra we have inside the human body. Most people don't have a hormone issue. They have a hormone resistant issue. What that means is those cells, as I mentioned, are so inflamed that the message is not heard. The, the hormones are, the messages, uh, the, the receptor sites, I should say, are resistant to the hormone, uh, hormone messages that are being sent. Um, so the goal is to find why, find out why you have so much cellular inflammation and work on reducing that. Because once you reduce cell inflammation, then those hormones could attach to those designated receptor sites that are around every cell and do the job. See, the problem that we have in our space, and, and this is a, a kind of a pet peeve of mine because the simple thing to do is to just take hormones. All right, uh, my testosterone is low. I'm a guy, 35, not me, but I'm just giving you an example, 35, 45, and I'm just gonna go on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. Or my estrogen is low, I'm just gonna take bioidentical hormones. And look, there's a time and place for that. But if you're not getting to the cause and you're still, uh, you still have high levels of inflammation. It's you're not going to feel better on the long in the long term. It might help in the beginning, but here's an analogy of how how this works. It's like when I don't have kids, but I imagine if I had kids, and I screamed at my my kids, "Go clean your room!" I, I shouted at them, "Go clean your room!" I'm really angry. They're going to hear me. First time dad is screaming. Oh my gosh, let me go clean my room. But if this happened every day. I keep yelling at them to clean their room. After about three months, they're like, oh yeah, I'm not listening to dad anymore, right? This is the same thing with just taking hormones. You're going to force the message in 
But overall, over time, you're going to just stop listening. You're going to just have to increase the hormones or scream louder to your kids. But is that getting to the cause? No. We want to communicate efficiently to our children. We want to communicate efficiently to ourselves. And our hormones need to communicate to ourselves. So the goal is to lower cell inflammation. All the things you teach on your podcast and on your Instagram, Martin, are ways to do that. Uh, of course, ketosis, fasting, quality sleep, exercise, cold exposure, red light therapy. I mean, all these modalities all lower inflammation. And as you do that, arguably somebody who's taking testosterone, let's, I'm going to give you an example of, a let's say, two 45-year-old men. One man has a testosterone of, let's say, 480, which is kind of on the low end, total testosterone of 480. The other one has a level of 950, but he's taking testosterone replacement therapy, which artificially kind of brings it up to 950. If that man who had the 450 level of testosterone had optimal inflammatory levels, he's going to feel better than the person who has 950 testosterone, but high inflammation, if that makes sense. Because it's not about the levels of hormones in your blood. It's about how efficient they are in getting into your cells. So it's really not about your total amount of hormones. It's about, are they getting into your cells? And the only way it could get into your cells is if your inflammatory levels are optimal. Mm, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, man. You broke that down really, really well, because it's a very complex thing, isn't it? But I have mixed yeah. opinions on that as well, Ben, in terms of TRT and stuff. And I feel like there's so much you can do, right, to actually get to the foundation and root cause, be healthier, get your hormones functioning better before you go down that avenue. And as you say, there is a place for it. Uh, but do you feel like at the moment that people are, a lot of people try and take that shortcut, don't they? You know, before they've actually done all that groundwork to actually, as you say, work on inflammation, work on their health, metabolic health, and all those kind of things, right? It's exactly it. That's why it's a pet peeve because they don't do the actual work and figure out natural ways to get their hormones optimized. Instead, they're like, just so easy to take um, a pellet or an injection to get your levels up. And you're going to feel better doing that. I'm not arguing that. You're going to notice a difference. But then what happens? Uh, like screaming at your kids, that that result kind of fades away, fades away. So they have to increase the dose. Meanwhile, now your body is forgetting how to produce those those hormones. So your, testo your testicles are shrinking, guys. And you're maybe developing acne. And maybe you're taking so much testosterone that it's leading to growth in your body, like cancer. So you got to really monitor your blood work and work with a doctor that understands, you know, what to look for IGF one and different markers to see if it's too much hormones you're taking. But look, there's a time and place for that. Uh, but for the majority of people, they're looking for shortcuts and that's not the solution. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And the body's an adaptation machine, right, Ben? So whatever you throw at it, like any substance, it'll adapt and get more efficient. And when you look at like androgen receptors and stuff like that as well, right? When you're taking hormones, I wonder what like impact that has. I would, I would, I would guess that it kind of down regulates the receptors and stuff as well, right? As the body gets That's more exactly with the androgynous stuff, right? In other words, what you're actually putting in it from an outside. Absolutely, source. because why, why, why would the body keep trying to produce it if you're giving it to it exogenously? You're exactly right. All those receptors start to get weaker and weaker. And then you're dependent on those hormones for the rest of your life. Uh, well, is that how you want to live? I mean, that's not how I want to live. And there's a time and place for it as you get older. But man, a man in his, in his 30s and 40s, I don't think they, they should be taking a testosterone replacement therapy. Mm. you got to do all the hard stuff first, Ben, isn't it? And you just touched on uh, fasting then. This is something intermittent fasting, something I've been implementing for years now. It just works well with my lifestyle. 
But again, after tuning into one of your recent podcasts, right, I realized I'm actually taking this a bit too far now because I just have like one meal. I'm like, you know, you know what this is like, right, Ben? It's like, how can I get the maximum amount of work done? Spend yeah, yeah. time eating. Okay, that's working for me. So I used to have two meals. Now it's one. But then I know you said the recent studies show that actually having, and it makes sense, right? Eating earlier in the day, like cortisol levels are higher in the morning. You're more insulin sensitive and stuff like that. And also I would yeah. say the main thing for me is sleep because I track my sleep using the aura ring. And what I have noticed, Ben, and I'm aware of it, but I still do it anyway, is I'll have like a big meal, let's say 3.30 p.m. Sometimes like yesterday was 4.30 p.m. And what I'll notice is my heart rate is just a little bit elevated, about four or five beats above usual. So my recovery is just a tiny bit lower, you know? So I know that. I'm pretty certain that if I ate earlier in the day because I have a big meal, it's like, you know, over 3,000 calories or whatever. Um, but yeah, all that to say, really, right, um, intermittent fasting can be a really, really good tool, right? And it's a challenging thing to do. Dr. Kilt said recently, you know, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, going without food or, in fact, abstaining from anything, right? Whether that be food, whether that be coffee, alcohol, whatever. It's challenging. It takes discipline. But give us your insight on, on intermittent fasting and the benefit, I guess, how people can use this as a tool and the benefits, Intermittent fasting is a fantastic tool, but like all tools, it needs to be used the right way. A chainsaw could be a, a fantastic tool. If you know how to use it, you could get some really good results. You don't know how to use it. You could hurt yourself. Same thing with um, fasting and all these modalities that we talk about. So more important than the tools, the person who wields it, they have to read the instruction manual, right? So with fasting, the instruction manual says uh, fasting is like a muscle you want to build up over time. If you're new to fasting, uh, you shouldn't really dive deep into a 24-hour fast or do one meal a day or do a longer fast. You want to build it up. Uh, so you build it up by simply starting with 12 hours. And that's very easy. You're done eating at 6 p.m. and you go to bed that night, wake up at the morning and eat at 6 a.m., 12-hour fast. And then you kind of just build it up from there. And there's so many uh, you know cool things about fasting. I, I like fasting because it's um like nature's reset button. It's kind of like the Swiss army knife of health because you get to plug it into all dietary philosophies. But it really is nature's reset button because you allow the innate intelligence, which which is this inner physician in the human body, to go to work because there's no interference. It takes a lot of energy and resources and blood flow to digest food, and it blocks innate intelligence when you're constantly eating and grazing and not fasting. A lot of energy. That's why when we eat a big meal, we're not energized and focused and ready to go get work done. No, we're, we're tired and fatigued. We're using a lot of energy, taking a lot of resources. So with fasting, you get all that energy back. It, it creates something called energy diversion. So now the energy that would have been used for digestion is now being used for, I don't know, healing your liver or uh, directing blood flow to the brain. Like the innate intelligence will determine what needs to be done with this energy diversion process. So I love fasting. Uh, there is a, a sweet spot to it. Um, men do it differently than women and women who have different cycles of their life do it differently than other women. I personally do well with, uh, like an 18, six schedule where I'll have most of my calories between 12 PM and about four or 5 PM, something like that. Uh, when I, I noticed the same thing, Martin, when I eat too close to bed, my heart rate variability will drop my resting heart rate, heart rate will increase and my recovery score will decrease. So the close, the better I could get at getting most of my calories earlier in the day, the better not only scores I get, but the better I feel the next morning. Yeah, really interesting. And that's essentially, like I said, what I used to do eat in that small window. I had my first at lunchtime and then one uh, in the evening. So perhaps I should switch back to that. But yeah, just what you were saying then, it's a great tool to use. But again, 
I always say this, it's a tool for most of my clients that I take on, Ben, that we use later down the line, really, depending on what what level they're at. But first and foremost, you've got to focus on those fundamentals, right? Most people, uh, again, the people I take on, this is not necessarily the case, but most people are overeating those highly palatable, ultra-processed foods, right? And then it's funny how people go from one extreme to another. And then it's like, it's kind of dying now, but fasting was like a buzzword at one point, wasn't it? And everyone's like, oh, one meal a day, that's cool. And then it sounds kind of cool to tell people, you know, I'm fasting now. And it's like, really, most people, they don't, they're not in a position to do that. I don't think they should be doing that. I think they should be working on the, the fundamentals first and improving the quality of food that they're eating, you know, first. What's your thoughts on that in terms of, the quality of food people eat versus just trying to maybe restrict and eat in a smaller window, you know? And I know yeah, it, depends, right again, it always depends on the person, right, Ben? <laughs> yeah, always, always. But in general, like you're right. It, it, um, it, it makes sense to change the foods you're eating. I like to get my, my students fat adapted first, help them um, achieve uh, the ability to burn body fat and, and get into ketosis before they practice fasting. You don't have to do that. But having some sort of low carb approach where you, yeah, you're changing your foods first, then you switch to a fasting schedule that works for you. Like I said, 12 hour fast is very doable. Uh, then your body will adapt much more efficiently. The problem is that if you don't do the fundamentals, like you're talking about Martin, and you're still eating highly processed foods and a whole bunch of carbs, and then you try to do a fast, it's going to look ugly. You're going to uh, feel awful. It's like you wouldn't run a marathon without training for it. Uh, you wouldn't do a CrossFit wad without exercising first or being somewhat active, right? So you wouldn't go and do a 24 hour fast without some sort of some form of metabolic flexibility. Because what happens is if you do a fast too soon, the brain starts to panic because glucose drops in the brain and the body is only familiar with using glucose, not ketones. So then the brain sends the body intense signals and cravings for sugar and carbs. So you have all these cravings and let's say you have great willpower and you just power through. Well, the body will find ways to manufacture that glucose via gluconeogenesis. It'll break down protein. It'll create a cortisol response and that, that'll raise glucose. These are not good things, right? But when you're fat adapted I and mean, you've done the fundamentals, then you go into a fast after that. Now, your body knows what to do. Glucose drops in the brain, but ketones rise. The body starts using body fat. You feel good. You want to feel good during a fast. You don't want to feel like you're suffering. And I think a lot of people who do it too soon, they suffer and they think that's like a, a badge to wear, but uh, you don't have to suffer. I, I feel incredible when I fast. It's I feel amazing when I fast and you should feel amazing when you practice fasting. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head and it's like now it's morning here. And I just feel exactly what you said. If I have a big meal, because I generally have big meals, then it's like the energy drops, the productivity drops. So I'm like, if I can just hold off as long as I can, I just feel sharper. But uh, yeah, I always feel much better as well. So yeah, that was super helpful. And I like what you said earlier, because that's always the advice I give the people, Ben, as well, to my clients. It's, you know, start slow. So at the moment, you're eating three meals a day. You know, you get up, you eat a meal at eight, and you finish eating at like 7 p.m. So you're eating in like an 11-hour window. So going from that to like a four or six-hour window, probably too extreme. How about we take, you know, two hours off that? So you eat in an eight or nine hour window, you know, and try that and see how you feel. And a lot of times it's kind of convenient for people as well, right? But um, I'd love to go into the uh, ketosis, into uh, keto stuff, right? So yeah. you mentioned then about getting people into ketosis first and getting them fat adapted. Uh, what does that look like? And 
Yeah, and I, I would like to just like kind of touch on on the same kind of question then is the the metabolic flexibility piece because that's what I like about people like yourself, Ben. Even though you're a big advocate for people getting fat adapted and you know doing that first, you're not extreme, you're not dogmatic with it. You talk about you know yeah, you know probably some carbs will be good for most people. You know what, depending on what point you're at. So yeah, I'd love to uh, pick your brain on on keto and metabolic flexibility. Absolutely. And thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be dogmatic. A lot of people in the keto space are dogmatic. And I, I don't even think we should be in long term ketosis. That is not the goal. The goal is metabolic flexibility, metabolic freedom. That, that means your, your mitochondria, as I mentioned earlier, have could use different uh, substrates, glucose or fat, in other words, sugar or ketones. Most people are stuck burning sugar, glucose. They are essentially what I would call an keto deficiency. And there was a study, Martin, that came out, uh, actually two studies, that came out in the last few years here in America that showed one study showed that 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. So in other words, metabolically inflexible. The other study showed it's actually closer to 93% of American adults being metabolically unhealthy. I say they're in a keto deficiency. They forgot how to burn fat. They forgot how to use ketones. Look, there's nothing new about keto. It's just nuanced. Keto has been around for as long as humans have existed. All of our ancestors utilized this amazing, amazing energy system called ketosis. It is not a diet. It's a metabolic process. We have forgotten about it as a society. And when you're stuck burning sugar, you are metabolically inflexible. So the goal is to get the person burning fat, what I call being fat adapted. And that could be simple. You just start to gradually lower your carbohydrate intake to get your total carbs eventually under 50 total grams of carbs per day. And with those carbs coming from green leafy, non-starchy vegetables, and then you increase your healthy fat and protein and after doing that for seven, 10 days, you should be tapping into body fat because you've lowered insulin and you should be producing ketones. Because when your body starts using fatty acids from your fat stores, those fatty acids are sent to your liver. Your liver uses it for energy and your liver produces ketones. And you could test that by checking your blood ketones. Uh, if it's 0 0.0, if it's 0 0.5, excuse me, 0 0.5 millimolar per liter or higher, you are in ketosis. Uh, you are now getting fat adapted. And once you've achieved that and you're there for a few days, maybe a week, then I like to pair things like fasting and, and different strategies. But you don't stay in that ketosis, that, that ketogenic state forever. Um, and you could actually, depending on your activity level, get away with more carbs and still remain in, in ketosis. Like I imagine, Martin, you're very active and you're, you're very fit. So you might be able to get away with like 75 grams of carbs and still be in ketosis because of your muscle mass and because of how active you are. But 50 grams or less is just a general protocol for most people, but that is flexible for sure. But the goal is to get fat adapted, get keto adapted, which takes a little bit longer. And then you start flexing in and out of ketosis. You want to continue that keto, that metabolic flexibility. You don't want to just burn fat. You want to also increase carbs on days maybe a heavy training day, you incorporate carbs, you get out of ketosis, what I call keto flexing, and then you flex back in. That is the ultimate goal. And when you do that, uh, it's what I call metabolic freedom. It's just you could live your life and your body knows what to do. And it's, it's just a fantastic process. Mm, it's interesting you say that, Ben, because I do realize that I was actually having really low carbs for a long time. And it was only actually yesterday I decided to bump them up way more than usual, like up to about, I think it was about like 100 grams. Normally I have you know, under 50 grams, I guess. It's like kind of carnivorous I eat. And I noticed today I slept. I didn't wake up at all. My sleep was better. I felt stronger nice. in the gym. I had more energy. And I actually felt good. I thought, oh, you're going to get a big crash now after eating these carbs. And I actually felt like just serotonin release, whatever, felt calm. 
I didn't feel like I had a crash afterwards. And I thought, oh, okay, so maybe that was a, a missing piece. I kind of lost touch of that metabolic flexibility a bit, right? Because again, you get so focused only sometimes on performance. You're like, I feel better if I don't have the carbs, you know, in terms of like getting work done, mental clarity, yeah. just energy and everything else. And then you can take it too far, right, Ben, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. You can. And then like, I love that carnivore approach, uh, you know, but we're not meant to do that. I don't think we're meant to do that long-term. I know that goes against the grain of a lot of my colleagues in, in this space, but I'm doing carnivore right now. I'm on uh, day 38 of uh, strict carnivore. I do it as an experiment. I did a whole bunch of lab tests and stool tests day one. I'm going to do it again before I break carnivore. I love it, but I'm not locked in carnivore forever. I don't recommend that for most people. Mm, yeah. Really, really good shout. And with the blood work, I'm just curious, have you done that before where you've done, I know you've done carnivore a few times. What's the longest you've done strict carnivore for in the past? 60 days is the longest. Um, I've done blood work before. Uh, when I did 40 days, I did blood work day one and day 40. This time I did blood work, a, a very comprehensive panel of blood work. And I did a stool test, a gut test to look at my diversity and different bacteria. And I have a CGM on. And uh, I've, of course, I'm looking at my uh, aura scores, so my readiness, um, heart rate variability, uh, deep sleep, REM sleep, and I'm comparing it to what it was before I did carnivore. So looking at all these metrics, and right before I break this this round of carnivore, I, I plan to do 30 days, but I'm feeling really good, and I actually want to do a little bit longer to see some more changes with the results. So I'll probably go 45 or 60 days, and then I'll do all those tests the day that I break carnivore, and then I'm going to put it together or a podcast and a YouTube to just share uh, what I've discovered with my results. That's awesome. And what was your blood work like on day zero and then day 60 last time you did the strict carnival? My blood work was good to begin with. Uh, some of the things that were notable, this was uh, this was in 2020 that I did this first experiment. So I looked at uh, C-reactive protein, right? Uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a good marker for systemic inflammation. I believe it was 1.1 on day one of carnivore when I did it back then, which is pretty good. And then on day, it was day 40 of carnivore when I broke it, um, the C-reactive protein got cut in half to 0.5, right? And that's a marker that most doctors, at least in America, look at for risk of a cardiovascular event. So I essentially reduced my risk of a cardiovascular event by 50% by eating nothing but animal fat and protein, which goes against the grain of what most people think. So that improved my uh, homocysteine levels dropped. My A1C even dropped a point. Um, everything looked good. Uh, and I put those labs, actually, it's on my YouTube channel. I put all those labs where I reviewed it. The only thing that went up is my total cholesterol went up, my LDL went up, but not the bad LDL that went up. It was the large and fluffy kind. And I don't care if my total LDL went up because my inflammation markers went down. That is more important. My triglycerides went down. My HDL went up. So I saw some really cool things and I expect to see some cool things this time around as well. The quote unquote bad uh, type of LDL cholesterol. What's it called? H, what's it called again? It just slipped my mind. H. LDL is what they call bad. HDL is what they call good. But the type of LDL though, did you monitor that oh, as well? Low density lipoprotein. The, the uh, low small, density liver. The small uh, particle A is what they call. I mean, so small no, that's particle it. B. B. That, that's B, the one. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. So that one wasn't elevated too badly then. That was no, that was no, it wasn't. I mean, it was it was slightly above that reference range, but it wasn't to the point where um, it was something of a concern because my HDL went up with it, which is protective. My triglycerides dropped as well, which is protective, and my inflammation dropped. So when I looked at the full picture, it wasn't a concern for me. Got you, got you. And diets, right? Let's just talk on that, my man, because I know you talk about the same stuff I do, and you said diets just don't work long term, right? And I always say diets work until they don't work, right? Yes. 
Thank Talk you. us through that because I know a lot of people listening, like, you know, people get into that mindset of which diet's the best. And it, the answer, unfortunately, ladies and gents, is it always depends, right? It depends on loads yeah. of different factors, right? But diets really, even being in that mindset, right? Ben, which I always talk about, I'm on a diet, I'm restricting to achieve X result, right? It's just not sustainable, you know? It does it's not. It, it, every diet has an has an endpoint, right? It's just it's not the right mindset. Because you know it's a short-term thing that you're doing and it's not permanent. A permanent mindset was more of like a lifestyle change. And all diets work, just not long-term. So I love a carnivore diet. I love a keto diet. I love a paleo diet. Heck, even for some people, I love a vegan diet, but not long-term. The best diet is the diet, the next diet you switch to. <laughs> That's usually because the, the, the change in the foods actually create... Uh, diversity in the gut, more diversity in the gut, hormonal adaptation. And that's where people get the benefits. But the problem is that they started this diet. Let's say it's a keto diet and they start to feel great. They start to get all these results. And then all of a sudden the results are slowing down and slowing down and maybe going in the opposite direction. And they're thinking, I just got a keto harder. I just got a carnivore harder. I just got to restrict carbs more. But that's not the the solution. The solution is to mix things up. I mean, you're you're a a fitness coach, right? Uh, personal, you're a personal trainer, right, Martin? Yeah, yeah, or transformation coach, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so I was a personal trainer, face to face, but yeah, similar sort of thing, just online now and helping people with the stuff outside of the gym as well. Got yeah. it. But but yeah, yeah so you mean, you're in the fitness space, is what I. That's mean. right, fitness um, industry, hundred percent. Yeah, I was a PT for like fifteen years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So um, I used to be a PT too for since 2012 to 2019, but um. Uh, 20, 2008 to 2019. Uh, but I was going to say every great fitness coach has one thing in common. And the thing they have in common is that they understand that they need to constantly keep their clients' bodies adapting and guessing, meaning they always change up the routine, right? One week could be high repetition, lower weight. The next week will be the opposite. High, uh, a higher weight, lower repetition, uh, these, uh, movements on day one, different set of movements on day two, they're constantly changing the routine for their clients because the client's body has to adapt and it creates this hormone optimization and it creates better results. This is the same principle that we need to teach and utilize with our nutrition. We need to change the different foods we're eating, the different fasting schedule we're doing, doing keto, then doing higher carbs and then doing paleo. When you start to change the routine, the body adapts creates healthier mitochondria, it creates more diversity in the gut. And that is the goal to create diversity and variability with our nutrition. Mm. And if we talk to the average person though, right? Let's just say someone listening to this now is maybe just overeating, right? Maybe sabotage, a common thing is sabotage on the weekends, perhaps maybe drinking a bit too much alcohol, perhaps just overeating calories, right? And eating too much of those ultra processed foods. So if we scale it back to like, let's just say the average person, right? I always say a simple thing is getting good quality source of protein. And it's magical what happens when I get clients, maybe at kind of like a lower level, uh, so to speak, that when they start increasing protein and getting it from real food, you know, like whole meat, for example, and eggs and whatnot, they actually start, you know, stop eating as much first and foremost, because it blunts their appetite. They start feeling better. Funny enough, they yeah. start seeing results from their workouts. So there's simple fundamentals like that as well, right, Ben? Would you say that people could focus on as a starting point, right? I'm not sure what your thoughts that's, are on that. That's a great a great tip, yeah, because when you eat more uh, animal-based protein, it activates different hormones and chemicals in your body, such as cholecystokinin, leptin, peptide YY. These are all chemicals and hormones that signal to your 
gut to your brain that you're full. No need to continue eating. No need to go to the pantry and look for uh, Oreos or whatever it is. So you're going to naturally eat less of the processed food by eating more protein. There's something called the protein leverage hypothesis. And I, I'm not sure if I'm on board with this hypothesis, but part of it does make sense. And the hypothesis goes as such that the reason we have an obesity problem in the world is because so many people are seeking to get enough protein and they're eating so much packaged food, which lacks protein. So they're overeating with the goal of getting enough protein. And when you actually give them enough protein, they end up uh, not overeating the processed foods. Now, I don't think that's the reason why we have obesity, but I do believe that when you eat more animal-based protein, you're going to naturally eat less processed food. It's a great start, especially for that person who is just eating 400 grams of carbs per day. They're drinking soda. They're just eating fast food. Focus on animal-based protein, and you're going to naturally eat less. You're going to feel more satisfied. You're going to lose weight. You're going to feel so much better just by doing that. Yeah, love that, love that. And I do want to touch on sleep before we kind of wrap this up, right? Because I know you've done a book on this, and I couldn't finish this off without you touching on the foundation. And I would argue the most important thing because it kind of dictates everything else, doesn't it? Your ability to manage stress, your decisions with food, recovery from training, and everything else. Talk us through what you would say the fundamentals are, Ben, when it comes to sleep. And I know it's a very complex topic. Yeah, it is complex. And you're right. It is a fundamental. Uh, Sleep is foundational. It's more important than diet and exercise. And the reason I say that is because you could eat like crap for months. Uh, You could not exercise for months, but if you don't sleep for months, you're you're not going to function. You're not going to be alive, right? Sleep is important. And I think more than the quantity of sleep you're getting, like just trying to get eight hours, it's more about the quality. And you mentioned the aura ring, great tool to have to see, okay, I'm sleeping for seven hours each night, but am I getting enough deep sleep where my, my body goes into this delta sleep and it starts to burn fat? Uh, am I getting enough REM sleep where my body goes into this consolidation of short-term memory to long-term memory where it flushes out uh, toxins from the brain via the glymphatic system? So by looking at your metrics, you could see if you're getting enough of that. And I aim personally to get about an hour and a half to two hours of REM and deep each night. And arguably, you could biohack that where you're maybe getting five hours of total sleep, but you're still hitting those numbers. So you're spending less time in bed. Some people could do that. Um, But some people need to spend more than five hours in bed, like seven or eight hours to get those numbers. But when you're looking at the metrics, you could see that and make some changes and adjustments and different supplements and different things to increase those numbers for REM and deep sleep. Because once you do that, as you mentioned, everything else becomes easier. You think better thoughts. You have better glucose levels. You manage stress better. You're more creative. You're better to tr- you're better at training. Better at recovering from that training workout. Everything improves when your sleep improves, and everything uh, decreases when your sleep is in, uh, crap. So it, it is really very important to prioritize your sleep and find ways to track. There's Aura. There's Whoop bands. There's Garmin's. There's Apple Watches. Whatever you want to use. I like my Aura as well. But once you look at those numbers. Then you have a baseline and you can work on improving it. You got to do the work. See, a lot of people in this space, they just want the answer, Ben, don't they? What do I need to do? And I'll do it. Doesn't work yeah. like that. You got to get the awareness, and everyone's different, even when it comes to sleep. But the fun yeah. you mentioned about deep sleep, Ben. Firstly, I wanted to ask you, do you, I'm assuming you don't have any caffeine or coffee? I do. Yeah. You do? I, yeah. I do. That's good to hear. That's, that's soothing. <laughs> yeah. The problem, though, Martin, is that I did a genetic test and I'm a, I'm a very slow metabolizer of caffeine. 
Unfortunately, I think, I think I'm the same. I've been avoiding that test for that reason. <laughs> oh yeah, geez. yeah. It was bad news, dude, because that means I need to really limit my caffeine intake because it stays in my system longer than I'd like, and actually going to increase increase my blood pressure. So damn, yeah. And I love my coffee. I do have it in the mornings. Um, I have it. I have clean organic coffee, and I'll put a little bit of some MCT oil in there and some kava oil in there as well, which actually buffers the caffeine response as well. So that helps me. Nice. Yeah. I try it. Well, I do. I don't try. I cut it off at least kind of like 10 hours at the latest, normally about 11, 12 hours before bed, because I do notice even with the aura ring again, if I cross the line, I have it even past like say 10 to the AM I've calculated that actually my REM sleep's not as good. It's a, it's a common pattern. Deep, this yeah. is, this is a selfish question, right? But deep sleep, Ben, right? This is the one thing that's annoying me, frustrating me with the aura. My deep sleep is always under, it's always like under an hour. Right. And I'm like, I'm trying everything and I'm thinking, caffeine maybe i should just cut that out <laughs> and see how that goes i know that's yeah, not that's something tough. i should do but it's just painful man you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i know right it's, it's tough i love my my coffee i don't know i don't think you need to do that um, yet I, let's let's try some other things i would say i would say first bring your eating window earlier yeah, in the day you're gonna say that yeah, yeah that'll increase your your deep sleep and then find a way to make your bedroom or your your mattress colder i use a something called a chili pad i put it at 65 yes. degrees no, I put it at 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then I put my thermostat to 63 degrees Fahrenheit. So the colder the room and the mattress, the more deep sleep you're going to get. Your body temperature needs to drop. So I think just doing those two things, Martin, um, should bump it up a bit. I don't know if you're taking any magnesium, but that also could help as well. Yeah, I'm taking magnesium. Um, what's your thought? Just a quick one on this as well, ashwagandha. I find that to be a really, really good supplement. It seems to work really well for me and for, for clients with just like, stress and, and sleep yeah it, it just I like it for me personally yeah obviously cycling it don't don't want to take it all yes, the for it sure buffers, it's, it's it an buffers cortisol right so we don't want to be taking that all yeah. the, is that right correct yeah correct it's an adaptogenic herb and it's great and you want to use it cyclically to your point but yeah having that putting putting in your coffee potentially or taking it in supplement form could, could be great I'm, a, I'm on board with that awesome man yeah yeah just um one more thing on that as well with the sleep thing i did have a chili pad but I've heard, I'm not sponsored by these or anything, but I've heard like it's eight sleep or something it's called. Have you heard that that other one? It's meant to be better. Yeah, I heard, I heard, I heard good better. things about them too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just in the process of getting one of them. And actually, I kind of know that's the answer as well. It's funny because I know all these answers, but I need someone just to like, just to, <laughs> right. someone like Same yourself. Me. Who I respect. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so whether I respect or I respect tells me, I'm like, take action straight away. All right, man. <laughs> hey, I really, really appreciate your time, man. So much gold in that episode. Um, where can the audience find you, man? And anything you want to share in terms of links or whatever, go ahead, man. I'll put it in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Well, thank you, Martin. I love what you're doing and it's an honor to, to be on your show. I appreciate the conversation. The back and forth was, was fun. Um, I have a podcast called the keto camp podcast camp is spelled with the K it's not just about keto. We talk a lot more than keto and, um, we're 681 episodes deep. Um, today we just released 681 or 681st episode. So we release episodes on our podcast four times per week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And then we have our YouTube channel, which we just passed 200,000 subscribers, which is Keto Camp on YouTube. So those are two platforms. And my website is benazadi.com, which has everything um, uh, to follow me, every social media platform to follow me. Awesome, man. The next time I am stateside, though, I'll have to go to uh, Miami because I love that place anyway. And hopefully we can link up, maybe do a podcast, but either way, man. We'll we do a in, in person right here, Martin. That's it, man. That's the way forward, isn't it? It's just the, like in person yeah. is a different, it's just a completely different dynamic when you're it in is. person with someone. I've been using the studio here and it's just way more like it's just different and it's a different dynamic. Yeah. 
It's special. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you, Martin.